Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the official podcast for the Bucknell Institute for Public Policy. I'm your host, Daniel Cohen. Buzzwords and phrases, what are they? Where do we see them? And could they be dangerous to the American political landscape? All this and more in today's episode. You're listening to Between the Horns. All right, it is my pleasure to introduce Bucknell professor and co-director for the Bucknell Institute for Public Policy, Chris Ellis. Professor, it's great to have you here. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, if you wouldn't mind, why don't you take a minute or two just to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, your expertise, area of study research, or anything else? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, first of all, I've been involved with Bucknell for my entire adult life. Um, I was a student here graduating in 2000. I came back to work as administrator for a while after grad school and then eventually made the way back a third time to, to become a faculty member. So I'm one of those people. I met my wife here. My brother went here. He met his wife here. So we got that going on. Uh, in terms of, of research and teaching, so I teach um, classes on public opinion and political communication, so political psychology, stuff like that. And uh, in terms of research, mostly what I look at is uh, public opinion and political representation. So for lack of a better term, when the public wants something, whether it's higher taxes or, or restrictions on abortion or whatever, do they get it, right? And so that, that's sort of a lot of the focus that I've been doing. Recently, I've been starting to look at something that's always been kind of fun to my heart, which is the politics of higher ed and sort of how we deal with the culture war as it comes to the academic quad or whatever. So that's something else, sort of a side project. But that's, uh, that's what keeps me busy. Awesome. Well, with that, I'll jump into a little background and then my first question for you. Within politics, certain language can often get skewed or molded to fit a certain meaning or lose its meaning entirely. These words and phrases can have an extreme effect on the way people see and interpret issues in the general public. We call these words and phrases buzzwords. They're often used to call attention to an issue or gain a strong response, and in this sense, they can be very handy. This isn't something that has necessarily become more common since buzzwords in politics have always been a thing, and so is attacking your political opponent. The change is coming in the consequences of the new way these words are used, mainly regarding uh, the misinformation that is spread. So I have a few very real modern examples of this happening. Just for our listeners, keep in mind, this is purely hypothetical. I'm not taking any particular side. I'm just trying to provide a clear example of the problem. So say I'm a politician on TV. I'm engaging in a policy discussion with a news anchor or analyst or whoever. This person and hypothetically a large amount of the audience listening would normally align themselves with Republican views and a Republican mindset. And we're talking about police funding. Now, we all have the same goal in mind, which is the safety of our community and the people protecting it. I present something along the lines of, you know, Maybe police in most cases don't need an armory full of automatic weapons, and maybe they don't need hand grenades, and maybe they don't need armored vehicles. And most would agree with me and say, yeah, maybe you're right. That's a lot of money for stuff they don't really use. We have the SWAT team, and we have special forces, and we have the National Guard and stuff like that. And then I say, great, I'm glad we agree. And isn't it weird that in the United States, a very large percentage of prisoners um, have some form of treatable mental illness, a much larger percentage than other modern countries? Wouldn't it be nice if say, we take the extra money from the stuff we don't realistically need and put it back into the community in forms of social programs that have been proven to reduce crime and overall incarceration rates. And in most cases, a reasonable person would hear that and think, hey, that's not a horrible idea. You know, I, maybe I can get behind some version of that. Well, then my political opponent hears this. He goes on TV and he asks me, hey, did you just say that you'd be taking away resources from the police? And I'd say, well, technically, yes. But and then he jumps out and he says, this guy wants to defund the police, right? Now, nothing I said matters anymore. All of the explanations and the data and the proof that I provided 
they go out the window because people hear defund the police and it elicits an immediate emotional response that people are way more likely to grab onto than any of the long, boring stuff that I had to say. Even though my argument was you know, thought out and elaborate and had a lot of proof and data, they're going to jump on this train because uh, you know, it's, it's, it's easier and it's going to elicit that emotional reaction. My question is, would you say that the, it's a pretty accurate example of how these words and phrases are being used? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think so. I mean, and there's two things going on here. One is sort of a story as old as time, which is the vast majority of Americans don't pay attention to politics very much and don't have much of an appetite for lots of things, right? Yeah. So if we think about what, this, what the knowledge base is that filters down to the, American, the entire American public, it's who's the current U.S. president. Once we get beyond that, we're hazy. So what you just said there was, I think, a really well-crafted, articulated argument that would cause people to tune you out or roll their eyes, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're just not. And so, I mean, sort of by necessity, you know, policymakers, even if they're acting in good faith, need to find ways to distill down messages into bite-sized chunks that people are, are willing to grapple with because you have to meet the voters where they are. I mean, sort of why corporations come up with slogans like McDonald's is I'm loving it or something like that, because you have to sort of distill stuff down. So, I mean, that's I think that's a necessary part of politics. And you can certainly use that as a way to, to spin things to your advantage and stuff like that. But the, the example you're referring to is is sort of like, I mean, I guess we could say regular words that are stripped of their meaning. Right. And so there's been a lot of stuff like that. Right. So the words like you know, socialist, white supremacist, woke, right. right? All that stuff. I mean, we say those things without any real connotation of what's actually going on. Right. And I think that's that's sort of a bigger problem um, in terms of just messaging in ways that is not necessarily designed to to inform or even to persuade, but to kind of mislead and inflame. And I think that's part of the part of the deal that we're, we're dealing with here. Yep. And I mean, that's another example that I have here is they're not like in the way that I used the first one, they're not necessarily being used to kind of undermine an argument or change a narrative. Um, but like you said, they're being used to either overgeneralize a word and strip it of its meaning or hyperbolize a word or um, something like you would, you said uh, woke, or, you know, someone would say, you know, he's just a, a, an elite or he's playing identity politics or he's being radical, you know, the radical left, stuff like that. Um, they're being used in different ways, but in general, they have the same goal, which is they're targeted at you to get you to think about this thing that's going to make you feel very strong emotionally, you know, angry or frustrated or upset, instead of letting you reason out and think through the points of the opposition. Would you say that that's an accurate way of, of seeing this? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, yeah, again, we're never going to sort of live in like Aristotle's democracy where citizens are debating the issues of the day, but it no. seems like it's not even a war of, of I mean, like you said, it, it's meant to sort of be inflammatory for the sake of it being inflammatory. And I think, I mean, just thinking about one issue, for example, like both sides of the abortion debate have come up with basically their entire, an entirely separate language to describe what's going on and what the government does and things like that, right? Pro-life, you know, pro-choice, anti-life, anti-choice, you know, different ways to describe different abortion procedures, whether it's a baby or fetus and things like that. And so the debate feels really polarized and inflammatory when if you actually look at the data, I mean, abortion is one of the issues on which Americans actually do kind of hold nuanced and ambivalent opinions, right? That it's more, they're uncomfortable with the, the, the morality of it, but at the same time, sort of concerned about government restricting rights. And all. So there, you know, there is a, a more nuanced point of view that I think is the view of most people, but not the people that are, are the loudest. Sure. Um, and, and certainly your point, I mean, these politicians 
do this at least in large part because it works. I mean, the one thing I'm, I'm thinking of that just off the top of my head is the labeling of Joe Biden as a socialist. If you have any idea what that means, you would never. Yeah, know. right. And, but so the, the, the sort of my point, right, is that like when this message was used with recent immigrants in Florida from Cuba and Venezuela, for example, I mean, socialism there has an actual meaning that people have a really strong negative valence toward, right? Because they've actually seen it in action. And so even though Biden is, you know, millions of miles away from Hugo Chavez or whatever, the label works, right? At least in part because it makes those sorts of associations, right? I mean, again, I'll go back to this. The same people that sell you politicians are the one that sell you cars and breakfast cereal. And if you can make that sort of snap judgment of this thing is good or associated with something I like, or this thing is bad associated with something I hate, that goes a long way. Mm -hmm. um, and, and sort of to the point, I mean, there are also examples where this doesn't work, where people sort of overthink the messaging. And the one you started with, I think is a really good example. So the defund the police thing was something that was, I, you know, basically started by the proponents of the movement. And that turned out to be a really big cell phone in the sense that the idea of defunding the police, their chosen slogan is like really unpopular when it comes to, I mean, that's really, really unpopular if you say Very that. Very polarizing. Right. But a lot of the, a lot of these specific things that at least the more moderate members to the movement wanted to do, like, you know, don't make police look like, you know, people in the army, right? Let's do reforms, body cameras, all that stuff is really popular. So in this case, it was a case where the messaging backfired, right? If we're thinking about defund the police, then people don't like that, but if we're actually thinking about police reforms that we could actually do, that's a completely different story. Sure. Do you think there's, obviously, like we said, using these words and phrases work. If, they, if it didn't work, politicians wouldn't be using them in the way that they are on, on such a large scale. Um, do you think there's a difference between using these words in order to kind of galvanize support from a base, right? Or have people rally around a specific message or idea and using them in order to kind of subvert the argument of the opposition without having to present an argument of your own? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I, mean, I think, you know, both of those things can be sort of problematic, right? That obviously, if you're trying to win over votes by intentionally misleading, I mean, that's not really what this is supposed to be about. Right. But in some cases, you know, telling the base what they want to hear is is even worse, even if that's maybe more, you know, quote, unquote, intellectually honest. I mean, because you have to remember, we're doing this in a really high strung polarized time. Right. And I mean, you know, we saw in January how this kind of messaging can really get out of control. Mm -hmm. um, but but if we're doing this in a time where for lots and lots of other reasons, politics is becoming more polarized, we're more likely to look at this us versus them, stuff like that. Then those messages work because they have resonance, but they also, I think, lead to a discourse that's not particularly good, right? It's sort of, we start with the toxic and kind of back into policy as opposed to the other way around. Mm -hmm. Um, so uh, the other thing that I think this kind of does, and this is not just the fault of this, but it's the fault of, I mean, there's other things going on. One, one of the things that we've seen is politics has become sort of increasingly moralized in the sense that, that voters are starting to think about politics, not necessarily as like a, you know, positive sum or even zero sum game about politics, but the people who disagree with me are just sort of fundamentally wrong. Right. And that's bad. And there's been a lot of research on this. That's bad in lots of different ways because 
then we can't really think about ways that we can bring people together to get stuff done, right? Like if I want a top tax rate of 40% and you want it to be 20%, maybe we can compromise on 30 and maybe we can't, but at least we can talk like adults in a room. But if I think that your opinions are just, you know, so abhorrent that they're an attack on me personally, then we're done, right? And there's some issues that are going to be like that, like abortion, some issues of racial identity or whatever. But if everything is like that, that's a problem. And I think that's where this kind of language, that's where it really has its, its strongest effect is it takes sort of this high, high intensity political moment anyway, and turns it into this kind of, not just a, a debate about the policy stakes, but a debate about like, who's the better person for supporting what they believe. And that, right. that's, a, that's a problem. Right. So, so uh, let me see if I'm kind of hearing this correctly. I think that the use of these words is becoming more and more effective kind of because of the democratic backsliding and the, the disappearance of bipartisanship and stuff, you know, the red versus blue state that we're in in the United States right now. Yeah, I mean, I think so. You know, because again, I mean, you said politicians do this stuff because it works and they do. Right but they're doing it more than they have recently. And that's concurrent with polls that show that people are viewing politics this way. Now, there's a whole billion reasons why we're there, right? It's sort of, you know, party and ideology coming together, the fusion of politics with sort of, you know, personal identity and stuff like that. Uh But this is, I mean, this is the kind of thing I think, right? That's sort of spurring this this kind of dialogue forward in a way that I, I really doesn't have, I think, particularly good consequences. Right. Right. And so to take an example, you know, from either side, I mean, the whole kind of insurrection thing back in January was, I mean, there's lots of different reasons for that. And maybe that's idiosyncratic to Trump. But a lot of that was basically coming out of the idea, not only was the election rigged, but it was rigged for people that are just fundamentally bad for the country. Mm -hmm. And so when you think that it's more than even the mistaken belief that you know, an election was stolen, then it has this sort of emotional valence to it. And on the other side, I mean, you know, the one thing that sort of gets, you know, I've seen people bandied about during 2016 and 2020 is like, you know, all Trump supporters are irredeemable. They're all racist. It's like, well, no, I mean, some are, but there's a lot of people that just want bank deregulation and a ban on abortion or whatever. And that's like, you know, so if we start there, then all of a sudden you've precluded the conversation. Right. You know what I mean? And this sort of dips into our, I mean, this is maybe a little bit outside of politics, but it's really not given how this has been politicized. Like the, the discussion of how do we get more people vaccinated? Mm-hmm. I think it's an unequivocal good, right? Right, yeah. And, you know, there are lots of messages that might, I mean, so I think personally, right? I think people that aren't getting vaccinated that have the medical ability to do so are making a big mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, there are ways to convince them but one way that doesn't work is to make fun of them or tell them how awful they are and things like that, right? That's, I mean, regardless of whether you think we should be doing that, that just doesn't work, Mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, we've unnecessarily polarized a debate that really shouldn't be polarized and everyone's responsible for this simply because we can't figure out a way to talk about this like adults. Right. And I think you even saw a couple, maybe it was a week ago when Trump went and had this rally and, um, he was with his supporters and he was like, you know, maybe you guys should get vaccinated. I got the vaccine. Maybe it's not such a bad idea. And they booed him. They really like the idea of, of like Trumpism has kind of grown past Trump. Right. All, all of this, all this galvanizing talk about these ideas has kind of stirred up this base. And they're assigning, you know, 
all these meanings and definitions to, to these words and these phrases, and they've kind of grown past the man that kind of pushed them to it in the first place, you know? Yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, you know, back when Trump was rising in 2016, I mean, you know, basically the idea, and it was correct, is that the Republican Party is creating a monster they're not going to be able to control. Yeah. True. But now you're right. I mean, I, I don't know if Trump's ever gotten booed before at a rally, but it doesn't sound like it's had, you know, it's, this is now, this might have been about him and the club of personality or might have been about wanting to shake things up, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. But it's not that now, right? It sort of lives on its own and it lives in, in really, I mean, the vaccine one, I think is an obvious public health one, but it lives in really bad ways, right? That, you know, if I, I, he wouldn't do this, but if Trump were to show up tomorrow and say, I actually did lose the election, my guess he wouldn't convince a lot of people. They would right? all say they made him say that and he's not, that's yeah. not really Trump or that's, yeah, totally. Agree. Yeah, I mean, there's conspiracy theories all the way down and that, you know, Again, that's not just, I mean, we don't want to blame words for that, obviously, no, but, no. but I think, you know, there is bad things in politics typically don't happen with people punching each other. They start with language and branch out from there. And we've known that since like, you know, democracy has existed. Sure. So, you know, if we're going to look at things that might be a little bit more tangible than reforming the whole electoral system, then, you know, I don't know what this would look like, but if elected officials could be better role models i don't i don't know right no no but, I, yeah. but something and, and part of it you know i'm picking on on policymakers a little bit but part of this is, is a monster they can't control right that you don't i mean you don't want to be the conservative who provides nuance because you know newsmax or whatever is going to see that right. right and you know on the left i mean nancy pelosi is trying to get stuff done and is being sabotaged i think sabotage is probably a decent word by sort of a very small but very loud section of the party that says we can't deal with them like we're not like if we're I'd rather have nothing than a compromise right and you know again that's not just words it's sort of our politics but that that's when this becomes sort of more intractable I think right you have all these politicians and policymakers like you said kind of giving all this power to what is essentially words and it's kind of blowing up in their face I mean, it's Liz Cheney, for example, like in terms of her voting record, like she is as conservative as you're going to get. I mean, she's but, you know, she said the wrong thing, which happened to be true, but she said the wrong thing. And now all of a sudden that's that's it. Right. Even though it had nothing to do with her policy substance, which if, if you're a conservative because you want conservative things, you know, she's really reliable. Do you think that this kind of like the use of this kind of language that kind of comes with the polarization, it, is it coming kind of in waves in the history of the country? Is it a problem that's getting worse? Are we creating a, a political culture built around it? And is it something that you see kind of getting better over time? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, again, this isn't the first time, right? We used to shoot each other over. I mean, Alexander Hamilton was killed in the duel, right? We used to shoot right. each other. Over stuff. So this isn't the first time. It's not the worst time. Um, but it's hard to see how this gets Put back in. There's a really good book that I recommend people read um, by Liliana Mason. It's basically on on identity politics, and essentially what she said is the reason our politics wasn't terribly polarized before is there was always what she called cross-cutting cleavages. Right? There was rich and, and poor people in the same party. There was people of different professions, different religions, and it sort of tended to mute some of the bigger partisan discussions. But now what we've seen is people's personal identities and even whether they care about their personal identities, right? As a, you know, whatever it happens to be, 
is now grafting more seamlessly than it has onto our political like left-right landscape. And there's lots of examples. I mean, if you look at comparative politics, places where, I mean, countries where cross-cutting cleavages don't exist are places that are more likely to go to civil war, right? Mm -hmm. That if you have, you know, two different warring, you know, faction, ethnic factions or whatever that share a religion, right? That's more likely to stay peaceful than one when there isn't. And so I don't think we're going to do a civil war, although some people want it. <laughs> but, you know, it once you sort of, once politics gets bound up in who I am as a person, it's hard to walk that back. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, there's been, I mean, there's been research that sort of suggested that, that one of the ways you do this is to have sort of like a unifying event. If anyone remembers the movie Independence Day, we stopped fighting because you're getting attacked by aliens. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, that's kind of what happened in America after 9-11. You would think COVID would have done that, sure. but it turned out to make it worse, mm -hmm. right? And so that's, you know, I don't know what you do about that, but it's, it sort of suggests that, that wherever we are, it's going to be a, a harder walk back. Um, right. And just one other thing I'd add on that is the other thing that sort of gets people to tolerate and respect each other is if they actually physically know someone different mm -hmm. and talk to someone different, right? That, that the, the big, just to use a policy issue, the big um, transition, transition in, in opinions on, on same-sex marriage, which changed, you know, in like seven, eight years, it turns out that was mostly driven by people finally realizing that some of their friends, for lack of a better term, or colleagues were gay, and you talk to them, and they're just people, right? And, and you know, whatever, right? And so when it comes to, I mean, that's obviously a much, I think, deeper example. When it comes to politics, we see people more likely to be in, in you know, sort of like-minded social circles, live in like-minded neighborhoods, like-minded professions. And, you know, I, I tell my class, if all of your friends that you talk politics with voted the same straight, straight ticket in the last election. All you're doing is making each other dumber and meaner, mm -hmm. right? And, the, you know, good, but there's lots of ways to, right. And no. so, you know, I, I don't know how you do that, but, but if people, now obviously there are some people that are irredeemable and I think we know that, but in general, if you talk to, I mean, it is not that hard to find people in good faith that disagree with you, but it doesn't seem like we're, particularly interested in doing it as much. And that's, you know, I think that compounds the problem. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. Do you think that it's worth it to like for the general public or uh, politicians at all um, to be kind of calling out or at the very least giving less credibility in their own heads to politicians and media outlets who are constantly using these buzzwords and phrases? I think that'd be great. I'm not entirely certain what the path forward is for that. How right, because that is. yeah, I mean, because the the I mean the, the analog I'm thinking of is when you talk to Republicans behind closed doors off the record during the Trump era. I mean, the the percentage of people out there that they're you know Republican policymakers oh, said, yeah. "Look, this guy's crazy. We can't." But no one wants to be the one to fall on their sword and say it, mm -hmm. right? And you know, you don't want to be the the liberal that runs afoul of the I'll use the term that runs afoul of the woke left, the academic left, whatever. You don't want to be a conservative that runs afoul of Fox News, but not even Fox News, but the other outlets that have, you know, massive drawings that aren't even on cable TV. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, yeah, I think it would be a much better world if people got their news from places that are, you know, less ridiculous. Yeah. But I don't know what that is now. I mean, the, the good news, such as it is, is the audiences for cable news actually are fairly tiny compared to the audiences of people who watch like football. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the number of people who like 
live politics on Twitter or whatever is not that huge either. Um, the problem sort of comes with people who are, are sort of incidentally exposed to this. They'll go on Facebook to find cat photos or whatever. But mm -hmm. then there's all this weird crap in their feed about, you know, <laughs> whatever. What, I don't even know, but whatever. Yeah. And, and that that's if the message doesn't diffuse down, I think it dies with people who are just weird and care about this a lot. But if it diffuses down, that's the problem. And it's sort of it would have to start with policymakers to make sure that doesn't happen. Sure. All right. Um, well, for my last question, just any final thoughts or takeaways for our listeners? Should they be watching for buzzwords in the media? Do they present any kind of growing danger or pass a problem? I think it's a problem, right? I mean, I put it below like, you know, districting reform and other things that we got to worry about. But like I said, I think the more people view politics in kind of this emotionally charged 90 miles an hour running into a wall way all the time, the worse our democracy is. I mean, mm -hmm. not to be hyperbolic about it. And that starts with with just the stuff that people read, the stuff that people see that's meant to be, you know, inflammatory rather than even, you know, a little bit dishonest, but persuasive. And right. that, that that I think is 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 the main concern that, sure. you know, policymakers have lied to you since day one. They've tried to sell you things since day one. If they're also doing that in the course of trying to, you know, inflame you to action, that's not great because that's not the kind of action I think we want. Gotcha. All right. Well, that's all I have for you. Thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed getting a chance to talk and hearing your insights. I'm sure our listeners will too. It's fun. Anytime. Thanks. Well, that was a lot of fun. Interviewing Professor Ellis was genuinely thought-provoking and enlightening, and I hope everyone enjoyed it just as much as I did. I got to start off by saying that originally this episode was supposed to be out about a week ago, but I got absolutely wrecked by whatever cold is circulating in Bucknell right now. I wanted to get stuff recorded, but I sounded like a Muppet. I still kind of do. And in the interest of my own self listening back on the recording and hating how I sound, I chose to delay it until I sounded a little bit better. I wanted to take this post-interview discussion to provide some more examples, maybe explain the logical fallacies happening in a little bit more detail and give a little bit more of a psychological and moral perspective if I have time. This one's gonna be a little short, um, but my main focus here is to give all you guys something to think about. First off, I wanna mention something that was at the back of my mind during the end of the interview. We kind of talked about it, but I wanna make sure it sees a bit more light. Politicians attacking other politicians is not a new thing. This isn't the concern that Professor Ellis and I were discussing. They've been at each other's necks since the beginning of our country. I mean, Thomas Jefferson literally called John Adams a hermaphrodite while campaigning against him for president. That's 100% true. You can look it up, election of 1800. The problem to focus on is the way in which certain words and phrases have been twisted to a point that they're changing the narrative of ideas and facts and information, and that this language is being increasingly used in an underhanded way by people who really should know better. Second of all, I wanted to explain a bit more why at first glance, uh, a lot of these buzzwords and stuff work so well. For a large number of these cases, people are using what's called a logical fallacy. Logical fallacies are errors in reasoning, and there are dozens of them. Um, in this situation, the one we're worrying about is called the straw man argument or throwing up a straw man defense. Essentially what's happening is the person arguing against you will purposefully misrepresent your argument uh, to make it easier to defeat, either by taking a small true piece of your argument and blowing it up, or oversimplifying or generalizing it or semantically rewording it. They do this in order to make it easier to attack without having to go after the actual complexities of your real position. 
to put it in perspective, think about the example I gave Professor Ellis. My hypothetical opponent asked me to admit that my stance involved a loss of resources for the police. While this was technically true, he ignores the fact that these resources weren't being used effectively, that my plan would actually benefit the community in the long run. The loss of resources to the police is the straw man that he's throwing up because it's much easier and simpler for him to attack. Now, those individuals who were actually listening to what I had to say, they would pick up on this inaccuracy pretty easily most of the time. The problem comes when people didn't hear my argument. They didn't hear me speak. They only heard the tiny oversimplified version that my opponent is giving. He doesn't have to actually craft any intellectual response or counter argument. All he has to do is be the guy who isn't defunding the police, right? That's what people are seeing. There's a vast psychological side to this, but simply put, people are just much more likely to act quickly and emotionally than slowly and rationally. People are also incredibly stubborn, especially when they think they're in the right and much more likely to dig their heels in than they are to change their opinions when presented with you know, a loud argumentative style, which has become the style of politics that we're seeing more and more today. This isn't to say that people can't change their ideas or become informed. Of course they can. Otherwise, what would be the point of politics? What I'm saying is in the modern political landscape of America, most people aren't very informed about a lot of the issues. The general public isn't sitting down and listening to analysts and experts talking about these things on TV. What is increasingly happening is people are exposed to this kind of volatile reactionary politics where everything is designed to get a reaction or put someone in an emotional state to garner support for something, for an idea, for a cause. You know, This wouldn't be dangerous on paper. This is a mass support for an idea usually has to come about. I mean, it's, it's a normal thing. What's dangerous is we're creating a culture that feeds on the self-justification of our own enmity and resentment towards the opposition without taking the time to think critically about why we feel the way we do about certain things. We're living in a world where red versus blue has become me versus you, where being a good politician means being good at attacking and demonizing your opponent. Just because someone thinks differently from me, does that make them an inherently bad person? Does that mean they're going to raise the country to the ground? Why are we in a place where politicians that we elected, people who have an immense amount of power and influence over millions of people, are knowingly choosing to manipulate people with strong language? Just because what? Because it's easier? Because it's simpler to paint another human being as someone who's evil? Because getting what you want and pushing your own agenda with deceit and emotions, rather than trying to present an alternative or even inform people you're responsible for, is becoming the new normal. Take a few moments to think about that. The chance, the risk, right, that these politicians are avoiding is in enlightening the public to the nuances of certain issues. The risk that they're taking is in attempting to form their own constructive logical argument to refute their, their opponent because they're gambling. They're assuming that the more reliable voter is the voter who isn't informed is the voter who isn't going on TV, who isn't going on the internet, who isn't looking for all these multiple sources, right? The chance that they're taking is in not informing their voters. It's more of a risk to inform someone than it is to not inform someone. They're increasingly using this language that has become so politicized that it's lost its original meaning. We're giving words new definitions to fit specific ideas and push certain agendas without taking into account the way that these actions reflect on the way modern politics operates. I can excuse the general public for not knowing the intricacies of every issue, but when career politicians, people whose job it is to be experts on dozens of issues that affect us every day, use this language and 
ways to avoid taking a real stance or voicing a real opinion only worsens the problem. It sets a precedent for other people that being uninformed or wrong is okay as long as you're louder than the other person. That even if you're standing against facts and science and data, you must be infallible in your ideas because of how confidently ignorant of the truth you are. It would be better, in my view, to acknowledge that you know nothing, being silent and observing until the time comes when you've learned enough to voice your beliefs with credence that reflects all that you have come to understand. The key is to stay informed, as informed as you can be. Ask questions after questions after questions. It sounds cliche and cheesy, but the more perspectives and ideas you're exposed to, the more likely you are to be able to see through when these things are happening. When someone avoids an argument entirely or purposely misinterprets it just to justify an attack. Not liking an argument is not the same thing as having a viable alternative. Disagreeing with someone should not be an indictment on that person's character. It is an incredibly ignorant and perilous thing to live under the assumption that the way that you think and the way that you feel could ever be mutually exclusive. The two control each other. They define each other, sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse. Being informed in politics means knowing the difference between the two. It's about allowing yourself to stop and think rationally when you feel strongly and not acting upon a feeling with the absence of any thought. And that's what I'll leave you with. I really hope you all enjoyed today's episode and got as much out of it as I did. Hopefully I gave you something to take away and think about, or at the very least, you found something interesting and entertaining. My name is Daniel Cohen, and thank you for listening to Between the Horns.